New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be examining the life and work of the great 13th century Sufi mystic Jalaluddin Rumi. My guest, Doug Marmon has written two books about Rumi, It Is What It Is, The Personal Discourses of Rumi, and also The Hidden Teachings of Rumi. I've interviewed Doug before about some of his other books, including The Whole Truth, The Spiritual Legacy of Paul Twitchell, and The Silent Questions, A Spiritual Odyssey. In addition, Doug has written the Spiritual Flow of Life and the Science of Catalysts, Sukhmani, The Secret of Inner Peace, and a book about science and spirituality called Lenses of Perception, a surprising new look at the origin of life, the laws of nature, and our universe. This is an internet interview, and I'll switch over now to the internet video. Welcome, Doug. It's a pleasure to see you once again. Yes, it's nice to talk with you again. The topic that we're going to be focusing on, uh, Jalaluddin Rumi, is just a, a thrilling topic. I can't tell you how exciting I uh, found your uh, books on, on Rumi to think that uh, here is a, a poet who expressed himself so elegantly on uh, aspects of spiritual love that, you know, people talk about it all the time, but uh, for the most part, the conversations about love seem to be trite. Uh, but Rumi takes it to another level altogether. Yeah, he really does. Um, he's often been called, called like going into an ocean to discover his writings. He's got so much depth. So, for the benefit of our viewers, I think it would be very useful to talk a little bit about who he was. Uh, what was his life like? His father was um, a known as a spiritual teacher himself. So, he grew up uh, with that. And then when his father died, he was assigned uh, the job to take over from his father, which was more of a traditional spiritual teacher in the Muslim tradition, although his father had a very strong Sufi background as well. And the Sufis tended to be a little bit more um, freewheeling than the, the traditional Muslim teaching. But uh, Rumi took over, I think he was in his late 20s. So uh, he started doing, he was already rec well recognized as a, uh, quite a, uh, well-trained in all the, the spiritual teachings, but also uh, all the sciences uh, and uh, history at the time. He was quite a student um, and well-educated. And I gather that he lived in a period uh, where a kind of rigid Muslim orthodoxy was enforced, and uh, one wasn't really allowed to to question the uh, strictures of Islam at that time. Yes, there was. Uh, there was. It was also there was also a variation of uh, people's interpretations, uh, and however, there was a very strong might say, orthodox approach to those sorts of things. And as Rumi 
got older, he deviated from that more and more, but always managed to keep it from crossing the line. And one of the fascinating things about Rumi is uh, he, he lived in the 13th century, some 700 years ago. But I guess it's fair to say that uh, his poetry ha has been read continuously for the last 700 years, uh, especially in uh, Persia, uh, because he wrote in, in Farsi and Persian, and uh, in particular in Turkey. I know every time I visited Turkey, Rumi is regarded as, as a cultural hero. Yes, since he ended up spending a lot of his life in what is now Turkey and uh, ended up dying there, they've, they have a mausoleum in his honor and there's a strong, strong cultural tradition behind Rumi there, definitely. His life seemed to change very dramatically uh, when a after he was well established as a, a student of Sufism and as a uh, Muslim uh, teacher or cleric or imam, uh, he met his spiritual teacher, Shams of, of Tabriz. Yes, it was quite a uh, experience for him to meet Shams. Uh, he, uh, w the meeting has been recorded over times. So there's a lot of stories about it, so it's hard to say how accurate it is. But one of the stories was uh, Shams stops him and says, what have you got all those books for? You don't need them. And it, I'm just shortening up the story. Takes the books and throws them down a well. And Rumi says, what are you doing? And then he says, I'm going to basically show you how to understand these things without the books. And Rumi had the insight enough to recognize in that moment he was speaking to somebody very special. And that developed into a really, really a close relationship between the two of them that lasted for a few years before Shams disappeared. So Shams would be the correct pronunciation, I guess, not Shams. Uh, I'm not an expert on pronouncing Farsi. Well, let's talk a bit of, about what kind of a relationship they, they would have had that made uh, such a dramatic change, because I, I gather that this is the point at which Rumi became more than just a cleric or a teacher. He became a great poet as a result of this relationship. All of his great poetry that he is well known for happened after. So, but he was also before, even before that, had a lot of followers, uh, and they themselves did not understand Shams. Shams was a very enigmatic uh, Sufi, and he would often speak in ways that confused a lot of people. He was looking for those who were really ready for the depths of the teaching and didn't have a whole lot of time for others. Uh, and so his, so Rumi's followers became very upset that Shams was taking all the time of Rumi up away from them. And they felt like Shams was some kind, had some kind of magical spell on Rumi and he didn't know what was going on. They had to save him. So they had all kinds of plans and plots to get rid of Shams, which is one of the reasons why Shams left the first time, was to avoid that. Um, then, then Rumi was so upset with his students that he wouldn't speak to them, and he told them that they had to find a way to get Shams back, which he did come back for another year, uh, and then he disappeared uh, permanently. And no one ever found him after that. 
And I gather that Shams was regarded as kind of a wild man of, of sorts from uh, he, he himself obviously is regarded today as a great Sufi teacher, but I, I'm under the impression that he wanted to push people so deeply into this mystical path that very few people could tolerate him at all. And he searched desperately to find somebody who would put up with him. And uh, Rumi wa was that person. I think he could be very um, charming when he wanted to be. But he was always trying to break people out, kind of wake them up, you might say. And he'd say startling things to them uh, that was hard for them to make the leap. And uh, But Rumi did not have that problem. Rumi saw that he was coming from a very, very deep wisdom. And he immediately was willing to subject himself, in a sense, to Shams's outbursts and whatever they might be. I think when you look at Rumi's poetry, and you've taken a very careful look at uh, some of his greatest poems, uh, at first it seems, well, it's beautiful, it's about love, and it's sort of mysterious and mystical and hard to figure out. But what you have drawn out of this poetry is uh, the idea that the poems are actually expressions of a teaching that is so profound that, that it couldn't be put into uh, normal, logical discourse at all. Rumi, in, in some ways, felt compelled. He felt like Shams was giving him a task inwardly. This was coming to him. Uh, and that he was supposed to get something out in writing, in poems, uh, in, in, in some kind of way of revealing this teaching without revealing it. And instead of speaking it openly, but without really speaking it openly. It was, it was kind of a contradiction. And so he had two layers be, beneath his poems. One was very much just the beauty of love and the meaning of love, uh, which most people can capture this and they feel it and it moves them and they recognize there's a depth of spirituality in it, which is what has attracted so many people to him for so many years. But there is also another meaning behind it where, which has a, a teaching, you might say, but it's not a doctrine. It's not a philosophy. It's very much one based upon experiences. One, one of the themes that seems to keep coming through is uh, this idea of transcending, transcending life and death. I, I remember one poem, for example, says, I want... I want you to die, die to this, die to that, uh, let go, give, you know, get rid of all your preconceptions, all your thoughts, all your sense of who you are. There was also another even more deeply spiritual meaning behind that. I think a lot of people get the sense of die in your ego. And it's a common teaching through many religions, uh, talking about that, set aside your ego. But he was also talking about the whole experience of, in a sense, really completely giving up uh, your sense of self, your sense of everything you know and you think you know, and in that way, entering into something beyond your own understanding, into a new experience with life itself. And the sense that I have uh, from your books in particular is that Shams had 
achieved this state. Uh, one could call it God consciousness, for example, for, for lack of a better word, and that's probably a poor choice in any case. But uh, he had achieved it, and, and he, he was almost desperate to get another person to into that same state, and, and he pushed Rumi in, into that state uh, in, in such a way that Rumi was then able, through his poetry, to communicate it to the world. Yeah, Rumi had already developed quite an ability to write and, and, and create poetry, but now he had a whole different meaning and purpose behind it, and it created a, a whole layer of power and spiritual movement in his writings that changed from what he had been before. And he recognized that. And in many, in one of his poems, for example, he has this dialogue between him and Shams. And Shams is saying, speak openly. Talk about this teaching openly. And he's saying, I can't. How can anybody share what is so personal and so private? How can anybody share what can't be, it can't be shared? And, and Shams is telling him to keep going. It's not, Nobody hides a drum under a blanket, you know. Be bold. Be a moment. Be be a son of the moment now, you know. And it's back and forth. But in that, while he's doing this back and forth, he's revealing what he's saying he can't reveal, and that's what makes it so interesting. There's this tension that exists between uh, an authentic mystical path and any. Uh, organized religion which has its dogmas and its rituals and uh, there's a sense especially in in the period in which Rumi was writing that uh, he was trying to affirm the religion and at the same time he realized the only authentic way to affirm it is to totally transcend it and in that era that was sort of a dangerous thing to do yes it was uh, and there were some critics he had during his time, who trying to, he, he was so popular in his time that they didn't think it was appropriate and they would challenge him. Uh, what, one of the interesting stories told was uh, this uh, Muslim cleric standing up before Rumi during one of his public talks and says, you claim you're at one with all the religions of the world, but the Christians don't agree with the Muslims, the Muslims don't agree with the Jews, they are all fighting with each other. How can you be at one with them all if they're fighting with each other? And Rumi said, I agree with you too. <laughs> well, you, you know, in a way, I think uh, when Rumi and, and from some of Sham's writings that I've looked at, when they talk about this idea of love, they're really referring to uh, something that is so inclusive, so that, that you just embrace the whole universe, and e even beyond the universe, you em embrace uh, non-existence at the same time as all of existence. Yes, it is. It is very much like that. It's interesting that uh, just before Rumi, uh, there was another uh, Sufi who had been taken to court over his talk about love and and the drinking of wine uh, and 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 he was claimed that these things are this is wrong you know this is against the Muslim tradition he explained in the court system that all these things were symbols of spiritual love for God 
And that, and in some ways, got the Sufis out from being um, challenged so openly as they had before. But that was clearly what Rumi was doing. He talks, for example, about the curls of the beloved. And what he's talking about is the way spirit spirals down from these uh, other worlds into your life, and you feel touched by them. And that was what he mean, means by the curls of the beloved. So all of those things had meanings to them. I'm under the impression that uh, in countries like Turkey, and I su suspect it's probably true in Persia, I'm not sure about the whole Muslim world, but that other, other than Muhammad, the founder of Islam, uh, Rumi is probably the most revered person in, in the Muslim world. He probably is worldwide. Um, there is a strong difference of opinion uh, everywhere in the Muslim world. Some do not like him. Some do not like the Sufis. Uh, to some extent, uh, the Sufis, there are still some um, living Sufi traditions going on in these countries. As long as they keep themselves quiet, they're kind of allowed to continue, but they're really not liked by some people. Uh, so Rumi is not always even seen as a Sufi by them. They see him more as a, in the light of a traditional Muslim. Uh, but it's clear that Rumi did not see himself as bound by any forms or structures like that. He realized, in fact, he said it openly, what he was teaching was the roots of the roots of the roots of religion. So he was going beyond all of that. In some of his poetry, you get the impression that he feels that the the rituals, the dogmas uh, of religion are actually an impediment to uh, being closer to God. He never goes so far as to say, you know, give them up or don't do them. But he basically says that if that's all you're doing, how much you're missing. Behind all those rituals is a purpose. And if you don't have that true purpose, you're not really making a true inner connection. You haven't found the garden with the flowers. You're just looking at the, an open field with nothing. We've had a previous conversation about your own background in Ekankar and uh, the work that you do in uh, the area that you refer to as soul travel. And you, you explained to me in an earlier conversation that you regard Rumi as really being in the tradition of, of what are called Ekmasters. And, and that, I guess, Really, by that you mean that if you look carefully at his poetry, you will see teachings that are comparable to the uh, work that you've done for decades in soul travel. Yes, exactly. There's so much uh, uh, similarity, it's re truly remarkable. Um, and Rumi's ability that comes through in the poems, some of these poems that we found the added meaning to, he's talking about having these inner experiences while he's speaking outwardly a poem and creating a poem that's describing an inner uh, tr communication with another being or uh, somebody at a remote location or somebody who just died. And he's having this inner experience. And then later on, they confirm that that is exactly what had happened at that time. Because there were um, historians have been interested in Rumi for a long time, and they often link particular poems to certain actual events that were uh, recorded about his life. 
Yes, yes. And some of these poems that we did, um, we didn't, we, sometimes we knew about there was a story associated with it, but we didn't want to read it until after we finished translating the poem. Or in some, some cases, we actually read it. We thought, oh, this can't have anything to do with the poem. But then it turned out to be exactly, confirming exactly what the poem was about. I recall, uh, for example, now, uh, he had amongst his uh, disciples uh, some people who were highly placed rulers and, of uh, different jurisdictions. There was one poem that suggested uh, that that one of his students, a sultan, had decided to select a different uh, teacher to work with, but Rumi felt uh, connected with him at an inner level, even though he had gone off to work with a different teacher. He really did, and. What was interesting was that this um, this sultan came to him after that had happened and said to him, he, he says, I'm being asked to go to this other uh, area of the country and I don't feel comfortable going there. And Rumi says, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't go. And But then they, they kept putting leverage on the sultan until finally he decided he had to go. And when he went there, it was an ambush. And they killed him. And the, the story goes uh, that when he was being attacked, he was calling out uh, Rumi's name, Maulana, Maulana, which means, which is the name that people refer to, uh, means mas our master. But it means they referred it to with Rumi. So he's saying that name out loud while he was being killed. And at that moment, Rumi is leading a class and he stops. And he stops, everybody stops and wonders what's going on. And he starts speaking this poem. And in this poem, he's describing what he sees and what's going on. And it's a communication between him and the Sultan who had translated to the other worlds. He had crossed over and he was in communication with him saying, you see, I have been your master. I am still your master in a sense. And I have not forgotten you. and I won't forget you. And it was quite a moving thing. And the students were wondering what's going on after it was over. He told them what it was. As I recall from that particular poem, Rumi goes on to say, uh, yes, he, he's now dead. He's in the other realm and, and all is good uh, with him. Even though he was ambushed and, and murdered, it really is all good. Yeah. And in fact, in fact that's the, the poem that he's speaking, which is an inner dialogue with the Sultan, that's the whole message is that who, what difference does it make about death? Now your journey continues. Now you can see even clearer, you know, what the, what the path looks like ahead, you know, and you know how to follow it now. So yes, and that's what he told his students. So yes, it was, it turned out to be a good thing. Now, and I understand that, that one of the key episodes in, in Rumi's life is when, when his teacher Shams sort of vanished, disappeared for the second time, never to return, uh, that Rumi went through a, a period of anguish. They had been so close. It had been, a, I suppose one would have to describe it as pure platonic love in, in the deepest sense. Uh, and Rumi had to deal with that. It was very difficult. Rumi had so much lost himself in Shams that he didn't know how to proceed without him. Uh, 
And uh, I think it's pretty clear looking backwards after the fact that Shams knew he had to leave because Rumi had to develop without his physical presence and to know he can make that interconnection to that God-conscious state or whatever you want to call it um, without Shams and that he had given, planted enough seeds that he had the way to make that connection himself. And you can see it in Rumi's writings from the early stages. He's writing about his loss of Shams and how much it's changing him. Just being having lost him, it's changing him. Um, and then over time, you can see he starts to speak in a sense like he's having a dialogue with Shams, and he's speaking as Shams and then answering him as Rumi, and it's back and forth, and, and this consciousness of Shams becomes established through his writing and his connection as he's teaching what can't be taught. There's a sense, I guess, at that point that Rumi understands that he and Shams are really one, that uh, Shams is within him just as much as he is within himself. And he realizes that really that is his purpose, is to continue on that teaching. But I think he also realizes that in some ways, Shams is still beyond him and working at a layer and a level beyond him through that all. And then later on in the book, we discover when he comes to see the meaning of that and that he feels that Shams is actually a very elevated being uh, in bringing that down to this world, this teaching that Rumi could then carry on, which was a real revelation for me. It was really, real insight, yeah. Well, it kind of ties into an earlier discussion we had about uh, the process of spiritual growth that any time that you think you've really arrived, you're in for another lesson. Yeah, and, and Rumi has one poem in this book called The Hidden Teachings of Rumi that we just uh, found that turns out to be almost saying that exactly. He describes how um, in the beginning, how could I know that I would, you know, have such, such cry tears of desperate need and then lose myself. And then, and then after that, uh, he just, he uses his images like, then I became like a ship torn apart by a storm until the whole ship was gone. And then after that, I became the whale that swallowed the sea. And then after that, the sea, it becomes a desert because there's no water and the, uh, and the de desert opens up and swallows the whale and everything in it. It's like, it's the same description of one, you think you've arrived and then everything gets lost again and you have to start all over again into a whole different level of understanding. And out of that also comes, I think, a real appreciation for the pain and suffering of life. I think in one line of, of one poem, Rumi says, you should be really grateful for the pain and suffering you experience. Yes, it was one of the really uh, insightful things he, he was teaching. He says, uh, he talks, he has the metaphor of the uh, the silkworm, how it of course, transforms itself and then ends up producing into a cocoon and then ends up producing all this wonderful silk. And he's saying, become like the silkworm and go into your suffering and 
in a sense, trans, let the suffering transform you into something much greater. I think it's a powerful, powerful teaching, especially in the times we're in, where there's so much suffering going on, and there's so much to be gained from that suffering that people miss in trying to run away from it instead. One of the um, peculiarities of uh, writing about love and, and the poetry of love is that oftentimes they use the language of carnal love. Uh, you know, you get that in the um, in the Bible as as well, uh, and, and also the language of being in the tavern. It's as if these are the best metaphors that we can come up with for a, a kind of love which is of a, a completely different nature. There's been many many traditions that have used this. The old troubadours they used to give their love their love songs, which changed uh, Europe at the time when they started saying, "Okay, love." Marriage can be about love and not just a business deal between families and this whole ideal. But what they were really shooting at was the ideal, the love for God behind it, because that was really what made it and lifted it up to a higher level. Uh, and then the idea of the, the wine was about talking about the ecstatic ex experience of these higher states. They talk about like being drunk with God was really about losing your, uh, your human consciousness and moving into a, a whole different consciousness that you lost your personality, your ego, your sense of your lower self, as it's sometimes called. Um, and that was compared to like the experience of drinking wine. So one of the famous Sufi sayings is, after you've drunk the wine, smash the bottle. And that means it's not about the form that the teachings come in. It's about the inner experience. And that point gets made over and over again in many, many different ways. Yes, countless stories about that. Sometimes it's a metaphor of a fly getting stuck in honey until it gives up and realizes it can't move and it let go. You know, it uses a countless... Uh, examples. He's, he talks about one time, he says, there, there are um, these discs on water and they are moved by the, by the currents of the water. But look how the water moves one so that makes that disc so attractive. You say, oh, I wish I could know that one. I wish I could be brought closer to that one. Whereas another disc, the water moves you and say, I don't want to be anywhere near that. Take me away from that one. And he's talking about these inner experiences of attraction and repulsion that are very, very personal, intimate experiences that come from these experiences of relationships, inner spiritual relationships. I re recall uh, one poem that seemed to be about the uh, pilgrimage, which is a, uh, a duty of all Muslims to take the pilgrimage to Mecca. And uh, Rumi is sort of suggesting that you, you should do the pilgrimage, but don't confuse it with the real inner work that a pilgrimage is about. He says you can go there uh, a dozen times and see the house of God, as it's sometimes called by Muslims. He says, but you have not, what have you seen if you haven't gone beyond the house, if you haven't gone above the house? And, and the one you should be looking for when you're there are those who do see the inner meaning and the higher purpose behind it all. 
Otherwise, you've got nothing. After Rumi's death, his, his children, his family members, founded a Sufi order, which is still an active order of Sufis, and they practice the, the whirling that uh, Sufis are known for, the whirling dervishes. Uh, and I, I also gather that uh, shams or shams uh, practice that art of twirling or whirling, I think, as a way of entering into an ecstatic state. I, I, actually, it began with Rumi. Rumi actually started it in his teachings. He, his, the people of the day were rather lethargic in a sense of, he used music, songs, and the dancing to kind of enliven, get him out of that state into a higher state, uh, was helpful for the people of that time. So this actually started with Rumi, not Shams. I don't, uh, I don't ever remember hearing Shams being talked about and doing that. Um, and, the, and it's called the Mevlevi order. Uh, and uh, one of the interesting things, experiences I had which I talk about in my book, The Silent Questions, was I had been taking, first I started off with Rumi's discourses that were in English and trying to understand what they were about because the translation was not very good. Even the translator admitted it was very difficult to understand. I spent years and years going through that, some like 10 years, kind of writing, rewriting the discourses and then going back as I was learning more until I got a sense of it. And I want to understand to see if it was working for others. For me, it was a spiritual exercise for myself. But I wanted to share it with others. And there were some Sufis uh, uh, nearby. I invited them to a class. And I was talking about this. One of the Sufis came up to me afterwards. He says, you are in the Mevlevi order. He, he said that to me, and I was surprised to hear him say that. It was I took that as a compliment, that he felt that what I had done was on the right track. Um, but then he introduced me to the Mevlevi order. Uh, they had a, um, a celebration of the Urs of Rumi, which is his death day, uh, and which they do the traditional whirling dervishes uh, a dance. And... I was invited in to the dance by this other Sufi. He got invited first, and then he pulled me in. And I had had some practices with the uh, whirling dance itself, so I knew how to do it in a way that you do not get dizzy, and you feel that the world is moving and you're standing still. And it was very much an opening, heart-opening experience. Very special. That sounds wonderful. You know, I did do um, an interview on uh, Islamic mysticism in Persia, and I seem to recall that there was an, an earlier Sufi who uh, practiced this whirling and, and described it this way, that uh, I don't have to whirl around the Kaaba in Mecca, in Mecca, circumambulate the Kaaba in, in Mecca because I've discovered the uh, house of God within myself, that that's what the whirling was about. Yes, yeah, I think it very much is this idea that uh, you are at the center of this whirling universe, in a sense, and it really does, you really do feel like that. And you could go on for, you know, an hour doing it without getting dizzy. When you stop, you don't feel dizzy. It's really quite an interesting state.
Now, I think historically uh, that Sufi, I know a number of Sufis were executed, but I think that particular Sufi who proclaimed, you know, that the house of God was within himself, not the Kaaba, uh, they executed him for that. Yes. Uh, yes, I think I know who you're talking about. And there were some Sufis early on that did, I mean, it was clearly uh, not, they, they they took they went against the Sufis quite seriously, and in his case, he would he would actually say I am God, and one 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 of these Sufis said that, and what, Rumi talks about that in his discourses. He says that statement is not a statement of ego, it's a statement that he had completely lost himself, and there was nothing but God speaking when he said that. So it was really a state of humility, a state of humbleness not a state of ego. You could call it God intoxication. Yes, in a sense. Um, to, to be able to speak from a state that you know is not your own limited awareness. It's coming from something well beyond your own awareness. And you get that sense uh, from so many of the poems of, of Rumi where he talks about, uh, I think he uses an expression like, I am the faceless face. Uh, yeah, he has a, uh, an interesting story about he, there was a, uh, a, one of his followers who was the uh, queen of the realm uh, and wanted pictures of him so that when she traveled, she could take the pictures of Rumi with her so she wouldn't forget him. And this artist was sent to do these paintings of Rumi. And he starts off, okay, uh, I, I'm trying to capture, he's trying to capture by doing a sketch of Rumi. And he thinks he's got it. And then he looks up and he realizes Rumi looks totally different than he did just a moment ago. So he throws that one away. He does another sketch. Uh, and once again, after he's done, he looks up and Rumi's got a look on his face that's nothing like what he was in a moment ago throws it away, he goes through a series of these, and he finally just gives up. And he says, I, and he goes into this state, an inner state that just takes him out of his body. And then Rumi begins this poem where he's talking with this um, painter on the other side and showing him how to get to know what that other side was to answer the question of what it was that was going through Rumi that changed him so much from moment to moment, so that he could experience it for himself. So a lot of these poems actually seem to be uh, teachings. Yes, and they're all very personal. He never philosophizes. He's never talking like in a, a level, uh, a level that's universal at a intellectual level. It's always very personal. Every, every time he talks a poem, it's to someone he's addressing it to. There's always a personal dialogue and a personal interaction. And you get the feeling that he's inwardly communicating with that person, not just outwardly saying the words. Well, this has uh, been a fascinating excursion, Doug. I think we could talk for a long time or if, actually read the poetry for a long time. Uh, I encourage our viewers to uh, look at your book, and in particular, The Hidden Teachings of Rumi, because you go through those poems line by line and sort of explicate 
portions of them that would would seem to be kind of nonsensical at first. In fact, you note that many of the commentators say it seems as like he's jumping around all over the place and it doesn't make sense. But uh, in your analysis, you you seem to have come to a point of understanding that there is a sense to it. Oh, so many transitions. Rumi is famous for just talking about one thing and then jumping to another. And for so many people, they he loses them every time he makes the leap. But every one of those transitions is meaningful. It is not just an accident. And one of the interesting things, like he talks about in one of his poems, he says, I speak with the language of dreams. I, what I have, the way I speak is the same way dreams speak. And it was interesting that one of the things I discovered from this, uh, learning this from Rumi, was that dreams do the same thing. Whenever dreams leap from one scene to another, and they seem to be like a totally different scene, it's meaningful. There's a meaning in that transition, just as the same way that Rumi was using that transition. So dreams, like you think if it's a whole new dream, okay, it went from one dream and now it's different. It went from that tra transition from one scene to the other for a reason. They're trying to, it's trying to compare the first with the second and show the relationship between them. There's a meaning in that, which is fascinating. Well, and I am under the impression from our conversations that uh, your approach to, to Rumi isn't just to appreciate his poetry, but it's to see Rumi as, as a spiritual guide and as a teacher who can lead you. Uh, and you approach dreams in much the same way as, uh, as teachers. In, in that sense, that are uh, taking you into deeper and deeper levels, I guess you might say, within your own soul. Yes, I, I definitely have seen him as a teacher uh, like that, showing uh, things that are so difficult for anybody to put into words, but in a way that I could recognize myself. And I often felt when I was working on these poems uh, with my friends, and or when I was writing in the discourses by myself, I often felt this communication with Rumi inwardly very strong. He, he would correct me when I would get things wrong. I would be writing something and I go, no, no, that can't be right. And it was interesting when I would, we was doing this with uh, Farzad and Mitra, who were helping me bring it from the original Farsi into English. We were working together. Uh, I'd say, no, that's not quite the meaning he means. And they go, how do you know? I said, I just, I just know it. And then we would start working on it. And then this other meaning would come through. And then we would all realize, yes, this made sense. And I get the impression from, from your, um, exegesis of, of the poetry that, uh, towards the end of his life, Rumi seemed to understand that he was writing not just for his contemporaries, but, but for the ages, that uh, his poetry would live on. And in a sense, he saw his own soul as being so much larger than uh, his body or uh, his lifetime, that, that there's a sense in which he understood that uh, he would be a living presence across the ages. Yes, yes. It, it is one of the most amazing things about his writings is how alive they still feel and how much people get from them even today. You say, how can that be? 
words that were so from such a long time ago for such a different world, and yet they seem very much alive today. It's one of the amazing aspects of his of his teachings, absolutely. Well, Doug Marmon, thank you so much for sharing your love of of Rumi and your understanding of uh, the the deep spiritual path that he wrote about uh, with me and and with our viewers. I'm I'm just delighted to have had this conversation with you. It's been my pleasure. And for those of you viewing, thank you for being with us.